Section 1 of An English Woman's Love Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An English Woman's Love Letters by Anonymous. Section 1 Explanation and Letters 1 through 4. Explanation it need hardly be said that the woman by whom these letters were written had no thought that they would be read by any one but the person to whom they were addressed. But a request, conveyed under circumstances which the writer herself would have regarded as all-commanding, urges that they should now be given to the world. And, so far as it is possible, with due regard to the claims of privacy, what is here printed presents the letters as they were first written in their complete form and sequence. Very little has been omitted which in any way bears upon the devotion of which they were a record. A few names of persons and localities have been changed, and several short notes, not above twenty in all, together with some passages bearing too intimately upon events which might be recognized, have been left out without indication of their omission. It was a necessary condition to the present publication that the authorship of these letters should remain unstated those who know will keep silence those who do not will not find here any data likely to guide them to the truth the story which darkens these pages cannot be more fully indicated while the feelings of some who are still living have to be consulted nor will the reader find the root of the tragedy explained in the letters themselves but one thing at least may be said as regards the principal actors that to the memory of neither of them does any blame belong they were equally the victims of circumstances which came whole out of the hands of fate and remained so far as one of the two was concerned a mystery to the day of her death letter one beloved this is your first letter from me yet it is not the first i have written to you there are letters lying to you at love's dead letter office in the same writing so many my memory has lost count of them this is my confession i told you i had to make one and you laughed you did not know how serious it was for to be in love with you long before you were in love with me nothing can be more serious than that you deny that i was yet i know when you first really loved me all at once one day something about me came upon you as a surprise and how except on the road to love can there be surprises and in the surprise came love you did not know me before before then it was only the other nine entanglements which take hold of the male heart and occupy it till the tenth is ready to make one knot of them all in the letter written that day i said you love me i could never have said it before though i had written twelve letters to my love for you i had not once been able to write of your love for me was not that serious now i have confessed i thought to discover myself all blushes but my face is cool. You have kissed all my blushes away. Can I ever be ashamed in your eyes now, or grow rosy because of anything you or I think? So, you have robbed me of one of my charms. I am brazen. Can you love me still? You love me. You love me. You are wonderful. We are both wonderful, you and I. 
Well, it is good for you to know that I have waited and wished long before the thing came true. But to see you waiting and wishing when the thing was true all the time, oh, that was the trial. How not suddenly to throw my arms around you and cry, Look, see, oh, blind mouth, why are you famished? And you never knew? Dearest, I love you for it. You never knew. I believe a man, when he finds he has won, thinks he has taken the city by assault. He does not guess how to the insiders it has been a weary siege, with flags of surrender fluttering themselves to rags from every wall and window. No, in love it is the women who are the strategists, and they have at last to fall into the ambush they know of with a good grace. You must let me praise myself a little for the past, since I can never praise myself again. You must do that for me now. There is not a battle left for me to win. You and peace hold me so much a prisoner, have so caught me from my own way of living, that I seem to hear a pin drop twenty years ahead of me. It seems an event. Dearest, a thousand times, I would not have it be otherwise. I am only too willing to drop out of existence altogether, and find myself in your arms instead. Giving you my love, I can so easily give you my life. Ah, my dear, I am yours so utterly, so gladly. Will you ever find it out, you who took so long to discover anything? Letter 2 Dearest, your name woke me this morning. I found my lips piping their song before I was well back into my body, out of dreams. I wonder if the rogues babble when my spirit is nesting. Last night you were a high tree and I was in it, the wind blowing us both. But I forget the rest. Whatever, it was enough to make me wake happy. There are dreams that go out like candlelight directly one opens the shutters. They illumine the walls no longer. The daylight is too strong for them. So now I can hardly remember anything of my dreams. Daylight, with you in it, floods them out. Oh, how are you? Awake? Up? Have you breakfasted? I ask you a thousand things. You are thinking of me. I know. But what are you thinking? I am devoured by curiosity about myself. None at all about you, whom I have all by heart. If I might only know how happy I make you, and just which things I said yesterday is making you laugh to-day. I could cry with joy over being the person I am. It is you who make me think so much about myself, trying to find myself out. I used to be most self-possessed, and regarded it as the crowning virtue, and now your possession of me sweeps it away, and I stand crying to be led into a secret that is no longer mine. Shall I ever know why you love me? It is my religious difficulty, but it never arises into a doubt. You do love me, I know. Why, I don't think I can ever know. You ask me the same question about yourself, and it becomes absurd, because I altogether belong to you. If I hold my breath for a moment wickedly, for I can't do it breathing, and try to look at the world with you out of it, I seem to have fallen over a precipice, or rather, the solid earth has slipped from under my feet, and I am off into a vacuum. Then, as I take breath again for fear, my star swims up and clasps me, and shows me your face. O oh, happy star, this that I was born under, that moved with me and winked quiet prophecies at me all through my childhood, I not knowing what it meant, 
the dear radiant thing naming to me my lover. As a child now and then, and for no reason, I used to be sublimely happy. Real wings took hold of me. Sometimes a field became fairyland as I walked through it, or a tree poured out a scent that its blossoms never had before or after. I think now that those must have been moments when you too were in like contact with earth. Had your feet in grass which felt a faint ripple of wind, or stood under a lilac in a drench of fragrance that had grown double after rain. When I asked you about the places of your youth, I had some fear of finding that we might once have met, and that I had not remembered it as the summing up of my happiness in being young. Far off I see something undiscovered waiting us, something I could not have guessed at before, the happiness of being old. Will it not be something like the evening before last when we were sitting together, your hand in mine, and one by one as the twilight drew about us, the stars came and took up their stations overhead? They seemed to me then to be following out of some quiet train of thought in the universal mind. The heavens were remembering the stars back into their places. The ancient of days drawing upon the infinite treasures of memory in his great lifetime, Will not love's old age be the same to us both, a starry place of memories? Your dear letter is with me while I write. How shortly you are able to say everything. Tomorrow you will come. What more do I want, except tomorrow itself, with more promises of the same thing? You are at my heart, dearest. Nothing in the world can be nearer to me than you. Letter 3 Dearest and rightly beloved, you cannot tell how your gift has pleased me, or rather you can, for it shows you have a long memory back to our first meeting, though at the time I was the one who thought most of it. It is quite true you have the most beautifully shaped memory in Christendom. These are the very books in the very edition I have long wanted, and have been too humble to afford myself, and now I cannot stop to read one for the joy of looking at them all in a row. I will kiss you for all of them, and for more besides. Indeed, it is the besides which brings you my kisses at all. Now that you have chosen so perfectly to my mind, I may proffer a request which before I was shy of making. It seems now beneficently anticipated. It is that you will not ever let your gifts take the form of jewellery, not after the ring which you are bringing me, that, you know, I both welcome and wish for. But, as to the rest, the world has supplied me with a feeling against jewellery, as a love symbol. Look abroad, and you will see. It is too possessive, too much like chains of office. The fair one is to wear her radiant harness before the world, that other women may be envious, and the desire of her master's eye be satisfied. Ah, no! I am yours, dear, utterly, and nothing you give me would have that sense. I know you too well to think it. But in the face of the present fashion, and to flout it, which expects the lover to give in this sort, and the beloved to show herself a dazzling captive, let me cherish my ritual of opposition, which would have no meaning if we were in a world of our own, and no place in my thoughts, dearest, as it has not now, so far as you are concerned. But I am conscious I shall be looked at as your chosen, and I would choose my own way of how to look back most proudly. And so, for the books, more thanks and more. 
that they are what I would most wish, and not anything else, which, had they been, they would still have given me pleasure, since from you they could come only with a good meaning, and, diamonds even, I could have put up with them. Tomorrow you come for your ring, and bring me my own. Yours is here waiting. I have it on my finger very loose, with another standing sentry over it, to keep it from running away. A mouse came out of my wainscot last night, and plunged me in horrible dilemma, for I am equally idiotic over the idea of the creature trapped or free, and I saw sleepless nights ahead of me, till I had secured a change of locality for him. To startle him back into hiding would have only deferred my getting truly rid of him, so I was most tiptoe and diplomatic in my doings. Finally, a paper bag put into a likely nook, with some sentimentally preserved wedding cake crumbled into it, crackled to me of his arrival. In a brave moment I noosed the little beast, bag and all, and lowered him from the window by a string, till the shrubs took me from the burden of responsibility. I visited the bag this morning. He had eaten his way out, crumbs and all, and has, I suppose, become a field mouse, for the hay smells invitingly, and it is only a short run over the lawn and a jump over the ha-ha to be in it. Poor morsels, I prefer them so much undomesticated. Now this mouse is no allegory, and the paper bag is not a diamond necklace, in spite of the wedding cake sprinkled over it. So don't say that this letter is too hard for your understanding, or you will frighten me from telling you anything foolish again. Brains are like jewels in this. Difference of surface has nothing to do with the size and value of them. Yours is a beautiful smooth round, like a pearl, and mine all facets and flashes, like cut glass. And yours so much the bigger, and I love it so much the best. The trap which caught me was baited with one great pearl. So the mouse comes in with a meaning tied to its tail after all. Letter 4 In all the world, dearest, what is more unequal than love between a man and a woman? I have been spending an amorous morning and wanting to share it with you. But, lo, the task of bringing that bit of my life into your vision is altogether beyond me. What have I been doing? Dear man, I have been dressmaking. And dress when one is in the toils, is but a love-letter writ large. You will see and admire the finished thing, but you will take no interest in the composition. Therefore, I say your love is unequal to mine. For think how ravished I would be if you brought me a coat, and told me it was all your own making. One day you had thrown down a mere tailor-made thing in the hall, and yet I kissed it as I went by. And that was at a time when you were only at the handshaking stage the palsied beginnings of love. You, I mean. But, oh, to get you interested in the dress I was making to you today, the beautiful flowing opening, not too flowing, the elaborate central composition where the heart of me has to come, and the wind-up of the skirt, a long reluctant trailing off, full of commas and colons of ribbon to make it seem longer, and insertions everywhere. I dreamed of myself in it, retiring through the door after having bidden you good-night, and you watching the long-disappearing eloquence of that tale, still saying to you as it vanished, "'Good-bye, good-bye. I love you so. See me. How slowly I am going.' Well, that is a bit of my dressmaking. 
a very corporate part of my affection for you, and you are not a bit interested, for I have shown you none of the seamy side. It is that which interests you male creatures, zoolites, every one of you. And what have you to show similar of the thought of me entering into all your masculine pursuits? Do you go out rabbit-shooting for the love of me? If so, I trust you make a miss of it every time. That you are a sportsman is one of the very hardest things in life that I have to bear. Last night Peterkins came up with me to guard against any further intrusions of mice. I put her to sleep on the couch, but she discarded the red shawl I had prepared for her at the bottom and lay at the top most uncomfortably in a parcel of millinery, into which from one end I had already made excavations, so that it formed a large bag. Into the further end of this bag Turks crept and snuggled down, but every time she turned in the night, and it seemed very often, the brown paper crackled and woke me up. So at last I took it up and shook out its contents, and Pippins slept soundly on red flannel till Nanan brought the tea. You will notice that in this small narrative Peterkins gets three names. It is a fashion that runs through the household, beginning with the mother-aunt, who on some days speaks of Nan-Nans as the old lady, and sometimes as that girl, all according to the two tempers she has about Nan-Nans' privileged position in regard to me. You were only here yesterday, and already I want you again so much, so much. You're never satisfied, but always loving. End of section 1